Happy Saturday, everybody. Uh, the Théâtre du Grand Guignol got the briefest mention this week when its name appeared at the end of a quote from the New York Times review of Dracula, which was directed by Todd Browning. That mention was so brief, we did not even elaborate on what it meant, but the Grand Guignol was a theater that became known for its terrifying and gruesome plays in Paris. And you, in fact... Got to visit. Just went over there location. When we were in Paris. Yes. Yeah. It is now. It's still a theater, but it is now a theater where uh, most of the plays there are staged with the intent that the hearing impaired can enjoy them, uh, okay. which is very cool. And I must say, we wandered over, and the woman who is the manager happened to be outside at the time, and she was like, "Why are you here?" And I tried to explain history podcast in French, which I did not think about learning to say. Um, and then she invited us in and just let us look around at what it is now, which was very, very kind of her and incredibly sweet. So, yeah, I want to give a shout out to the International Visual Theater. It's still there in the same place. And the building looks enough like it looked in those pictures that we found while we were doing research of the Grand Guignol that it is recognizable. So that was very, very cool. Yeah, so that research on the Grand Guignol, Holly did that back in 2016. We covered this on the show on October 17th of that year. So we thought we would fill in the gaps for folks who had not heard that name before. Ask today's Saturday Classic. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Tracy, it's time for more October horror. Yay! Yay! Uh, this time we're going to delve into not just a, an October spooky story, but a story of spooky storytellers. Uh, we're going to talk about a famous theater of Paris, and its name translates to Big Puppet or Big Puppet Show, which could perhaps to some ears, suggest light, silly fare. But the works performed at the Théâtre du Grand Guignol were aimed at adult audiences, and they were not for the faint of heart. Uh, the roots of the film horror genre are in the plays of the Grand Guignol, and the plays that were staged there really became known for telling the darker side of, uh, or for exploring the darker side of storytelling, often in really visceral and very gruesome and explicit and graphic ways. It was outrageous and terrifying and sometimes scandalous, and it became a beloved fixture of Parisian of the Parisian theatrical scene in the early 1900s. And throughout the 19th century, uh, faits divers were incredibly popular, and these were short, sensational stories that uh, were printed in French papers, and they were frequently illustrated, and they reported true-life sort of crime stories rife with gory details. And unlike fairy tales or morality stories, these usually did not end happily. And in some ways, the taste for stories of this nature, which developed in the consciousness of France throughout the 1800s, really set the perfect scene for the the Théâtre du Grand Guignol. The story of the Grand Guignol starts in 1897 with Oscar Metenier when he purchased a theater in the Cartier Pigalle area of Paris. He had worked on the police force, and one of his duties was watching over death row prisoners at the time, uh, basically in the time that was leading up to their executions. He also worked as a tabloid journalist before he became a playwright. 
Metenier had been working with André Antoine at the Théâtre Libre, which staged stories of the lower classes of Paris. They really were kind of doing this whole naturalist thing that was growing in popularity. But that theater had really struggled, and it shut its doors for good in the mid-1890s. During the run of Théâtre Libre, uh, Metenier had written some of the most provocative short plays that were staged there. The Théâtre du Grand Guignol sat at the end of a small cul-de-sac in called the Impasse Chaptal. It had originally been built as a chapel, and some of the original chapel decor remained, including angel sculptures hanging over the orchestra pit and seating boxes, which due to their carved wood paneling looked like confessionals. And the stage there was a tiny square, 20 feet by 20 feet. That's about six by six meters. And there were somewhere between 230 and 285 seats, depending on what source you're reading. One of the reasons Metenier started this venue in the smallest theater in Paris was to mount his own productions. His naturalist plays were just not the kind of thing that other playhouses were willing to produce. He had done some work writing farces and prose, but Metenier eventually went back to short plays. Like those that he had worked on at the Théâtre Libre, Oscar's plays written for the Grand Guignol featured characters of the street such as hustlers, sex workers, and homeless people. And he launched his theater on April 13th of 1897 with a slate of seven shorts. Two dark tales performed that evening were written by Metinier, while the other five were a mix of comedy and drama that had been written by other writers. This mix of styles uh, was part of an approach that Metinier started that he called hot and cold theater. Dark or gruesome fare was was alternated with often body comedic pieces because the theater would run anywhere from four to seven different plays every night. They could take the audience through a series of emotional highs and lows over the course of one evening. As a result of this style switching, the horror seemed more frightening and the comedy seemed funnier. Yeah, it's uh, often explained as if you run hot water on your hands and then switch to cold, the cold seems icier than it is and vice versa. So that same sort of thing was being applied to staging their productions for the evening. And while Matinier had thought that in running his own theater house, he'd have the freedom to stage the shows he wanted, it turned out that the Paris police actually felt a little bit differently about the situation. Uh, one of his first shows, Mademoiselle Fifi, which was an adaptation of a novel, was shut down temporarily by police censors because the main character was a sex worker. Although the police didn't appreciate the gritty realism of Matinier's plays, audiences really did. The Grand Guignol was successful basically immediately. Yeah, people really loved it. Uh, But even though it was doing quite well, Oscar Matinier did not head up the theater for long. In 1898, just the following year, Max Maury took over as director. And Matinier had run the theater for four seasons, but he really felt like it was impossible to keep the shocking stories going long term. So he sold the whole business to Maury. Well, that change in leadership was a significant change in the tone of the offerings on stage. Maury had a lot of theater experience, but was not one of Paris's highbrow artistes. He wasn't especially concerned with continuing the style of naturalism for artistic integrity. He wanted to make the theater profitable because it's a business. Yeah. <laughs> uh, under his guidance, Grand Guignol gained a reputation for bloody, terrifying offerings. 
And Mari catered to a sort of voyeuristic bloodlust in the audience. His lineups filled with unsettling visuals that struck fear in viewers and made them question exactly where the line between theater and reality sat came to be called Slice of Death as a counter to Matinier's Slice of Life dramas. Mari was a masterful marketer of the Grand Guignol during this time. He hired a doctor to attend all the shows in case anybody needed to be treated for fainting, and he reveled in the publicity that that move brought. He measured the success of any given show by how many people fainted during it. Yeah, they really were doing some very, very graphic, you know, beheadings, dismemberments, uh, disembowelings. Lots of stabbings and eye gougings. They were really, like, doing some pretty impressive onstage effects. And as a director, Max Mari was exacting. He may not have been driven by, you know, this intense artistic vision, but he was adamant that the plays had to be paced perfectly to maximize the effect of the comedy or horror that was being delivered to the audience. And he pushed the acting troupe, which is normally a group of about 14 actors, to extremes with endless rehearsals and some pretty cutting criticism that he could dole out. The actors were basically always on edge. Arguments were frequent. So the behind-the-scenes drama was apparently just as heightened as that on the stage, although it was absent of the blood and dismemberment portions. <laughs> One of Mari's discoveries during this time was André Delord, a novelist and playwright who collaborated with Dr. Alfred Binet, an experimental psychologist to create stage scripts that uh, that explored insanity in depth. Delord was a physician's son and had grown obsessed with death as a child. Binet, who was Delord's doctor as well, found the patient frustratingly unwilling to do real self-examination, and he probably cut sessions short because he had ideas for plays while the two of them were talking. Delord had worked in other theater at the time. So when uh, that was my note that he was sort of a discovery of Mari's, but discovery might be a weird word to use there and not entirely accurate. But he really, once he hooked up with the uh, the Grand Guignol, his career really blossomed. And it was because he was always consulting doctors and experts so that he could really get all of the all of the gory stuff as accurate as possible. And it seems odd to me that your psychologist would also be your creative uh, collaborator, but it seemed to work for them. Well, and maybe, not even maybe, <laughs> definitely also medically not ethical. Right? You wouldn't be able to pull that off today, I don't think. But at the time, uh, despite <laughs> Benet's apparent willingness to talk about uh, how Delord wasn't doing his his work on self openly, which, again, would not be ethical, uh, they seemed to do really well in terms of putting plays together. And Delord would eventually earn the nickname the Prince of Terror for his dozens and dozens of plays that combined this fascination with psychology and death with stories that had been sort of gleaned from newspapers and police reports. And that combination really examined the depths of humankind's savagery. Delord favored insane asylums and surgeries for settings of his dramas, and his goal was to write a play that was so filled with terror that it would clear the entire audience within minutes of beginning. It's a weird goal. <laughs> when I was about 24 years old, I dated somebody whose goal was to write a book so scary nobody could get to the end of it. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All of this ultimately led to incredible success. So much 
that it is often Max Mari and not Oscar Matinier who's credited with starting the Grand Guignol. There was an average of two faintings per night, which just seemed to entice new audience members to come in. And those two people, by the way, were normally men. The Grand Guignol became celebrated as part of Parisian culture. Yeah, the explanation that's often given as to why it was always men that fainted was because the ladies would cover their eyes when the scarier parts happened, whereas the men would not. But that I think that matter could potentially be up to debate. The Grand Guignol's next director took the gory realism portrayed on stage to all new levels. But before we get into that, we're going to take a little break and have a word from one of our sponsors. In 1915, the theater's directorship passed to Camille Choisy when Max Mari retired. Charles Zabel was also a financial partner, but it was Camille Choisy who was running things. And Choisy took the stagings of the theater to all new heights by way of special effects. So in addition to makeup and physical effects, which were already being done at the Grand Guignol uh, and which he elevated, he also used lighting and sound to carry the audience members along with the actors on stage into a world of insanity and gore and terror. As the First World War played out, there was some concern that audiences would become so jaded by the events that were unfolding in Europe and abroad that the French theater of blood would stop being appealing. But Choisy opted to use the public's new knowledge to innovate in these plays. In addition to the knives and pistols, he started incorporating stories with grenades and poisonous gas, so themes obviously taken from the war. And he was ever looking for ways to push the boundaries of realism to keep potentially bored audiences on the edge of their seats. So Schwazi even purchased a full surgical setup for use as a set. Plays were also staged on sets that looked like the interiors of dirigibles and railroad cars and mines and factories. So the types of things that were on people's minds at this time. This is where I want to pause and remind you that that stage was only 20 by 20. So building out these sets had to have been an incredible work of like engineering and creativity. It was also Schwazi who hired actress Paula Maxa, who would become the celebrated star of the Grand Guignol. Uh, compared to the famous Sarah Bernhardt as her horror, horror equivalent, Maxa gained her fame through play after play in which her character was tortured or mauled. And in one play, she even decomposed on stage over the course of several minutes. Over the course of her time at the Grand Guignol, she yelled help on stage more than 900 times. But that didn't really help her out because she was murdered in the theater more than 10,000 times. Yeah, she, uh, you know, when you're doing four to seven plays a night, (laughs) you can get killed over and over in the course of one evening as an actor. Uh, And by this time, with the range of special effects in each show continuing to grow, these actors became masters not only of portraying human emotion at the extremes of experience, but they also had to become incredibly skilled at simultaneously deploying the tricks of their trade that went far beyond, like, using blood packs and, like, having to explode one of those. Actors would have to trigger effects that made their faces appear to melt or their skin burst into flame or any number of other horrors while they were still doing the job of trying to act realistically. As the spectacle grew, the Grand Guignol drew a wide-ranging audience. People who lived nearby would attend to enjoy some local theater, and the highbrow art set bought tickets to indulge in the darker themes on the stage there. Audiences would show up to openings in formal attire with BYOB champagne. 
Allegedly, the boxes in the back of the theater, which were quite private, were often the sites of romantic trysts. And it was during Choisy's time at the helm that records were set at the Grand Guignol for faintings, as well as an increase in the number of audience members who would run out into the alley over the course of the evening to be sick. The effects had become so sophisticated that during one play when an actress had her eye gouged out on stage and then revealed the gaping hole in her skull, six members of the audience lost consciousness. On another evening, what looked for all the world like a real blood transfusion taking place on stage resulted in the record of 15 fainting attendees. Choisy ran the theater for more than a decade before Jacques Jouvin became the director in 1926. Jouvin, who bought out Charles Zibel, really seemed to want to depart from what had gone on before and, in fact, had made the Grand Guignol famous. Choisy stayed on for a while as a collaborator, but he left after three years to start a competing theater. And Jouvin also fired crowd favorite Paula Maxa, who also left and started her own theater. Unfortunately, neither Maxa's venture nor Choisy's took flight, however. The new director began to stage shows that were less creative and exploratory and set up one gag after another. He set slates that were thematic for a whole evening, sometimes all penned by the same writer. Sometimes there were multiple writers listed on the playbill, but they were all just his pseudonyms. Yeah, he usually is is characterized as kind of not understanding what the true magic of the Grand Guignol was. And without the artistry of storytelling that had teased out the tension and fear of a story, the audience lost interest. And additionally, the theater productions started to have to compete with the early universal horror films. Dracula, starring Bela Lugosi, debuted in 1931. James Whale's Frankenstein also came out that same year. And while their roots were in many ways in the horror and the identity of horror and storytelling that had started at the Grand Guignol, they were now a very real threat to that theater, and attendance dwindled rapidly. In 1937, a British actress named Eva Berkson took over this limping theater from Jouvin. For a while, it seemed like there was some hope for a return to the golden days of the Grand Guignol. Berkson relaunched the theater with a mix of old audience favorites and new plays, and she hired back Paula Maxa. But due to years of screaming, the former queen of the Theater of Blood had damaged her vocal instrument, and she could no longer scream like she once did. Yeah, she really wasn't able to um, project, uh, according to most accounts, or even speak much over like your standard speaking voice. Uh, Berkson was able, however, to bring audiences back. And for several years, the small former chapel once again was home to devoted crowds and spurting blood. But the German occupation of Paris in 1940 brought Berkson's involvement to a screeching halt. She fled. As a British national, it would have been incredibly dangerous for her to try to stay, although the theater did continue to mount productions in her absence. Occupation slates were by and large repeats of the ones that had played under Schwazi's leadership. The old director had returned in Berkson's absence to try to keep things going, and some of the occupying troops did attend, although the theater was deemed degenerate art, even though Hermann Goering quite liked it. Yeah, there were apparently plans when Germany was finally victorious to basically like destroy the Grand Guignol and uh, pretend it had never existed, just wipe it from the history books. 
But uh, as we know, that's not how the war played out. And Berkson once again resumed her leadership role at the Grand Guignol in 1944. And this time, when she returned from England, she had a husband who was Alexander Dundas. And World War II really dealt a severe blow to the theater. For one, there was some ill will in Paris that the Grand Guignol had stayed open to entertain the enemy troops. Berkson's return seemed to help smooth that over a little bit, and a visit from General Patton uh, to the theater actually caused an uptick in ticket sales temporarily. But the global conflict also gave audiences far too much real horror for a theater that was built around gore to hold any sort of appeal. To be truly shocked in the Guignol tradition would have required something far more sensational than the little stage could manage. In a 1947 interview with Time magazine, Eva Berkson said, Really, I've almost come to the conclusion that the only way to frighten a French audience since the war is to cut up a woman on stage, a live woman, of course, and throw them the pieces. During the 1947 season, in an effort to elicit some sort of excitement or thrill response from audiences, the Grand Guignol mounted productions that included La Laboratoire des Hallucinations, uh, which featured a surgeon operating on the brain of his wife's lover on stage, and Un Crime dans une maison de feu, which was crime in a crazy house, uh, where a pair of elderly inmates... Uh, all women tortured a young, beautiful patient by driving a pair of scissors into her eye. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that was the tradition of this theater. I mean, I've had kind of I've stuff. had that response at several moments in this episode, but I, that one in particular. Even after testing out a variety of different formats and styles of theater, Bergson could just not regain a foothold in entertainment. In 1951, she retired from the Grand Guignol. And next up, we're going to talk about the final years of the Théâtre du Grand Guignol. But before we do, uh, we're going to pause one more time for another sponsor break. The last decade of the Grand Guignol was marked by struggle, artistic uncertainty, and rapid turnover. When Bergson stepped away from the theater, Max Maury's sons bought it, and the company manager, Charles Nonon, became the interim director. The plays that were staged from 1951 to 1954 in an effort to try new things, since the old horror just wasn't working, were so far outside of the identity of the Grand Guignol that they just couldn't draw audiences. No one associated the theater in Impasse Chaptal with the musical reviews or long-form satire that were being tried during this time. In 1954, there was a, a ray of hope. Uh, it arrived in the form of journalist and feminist Raymond Machard uh, when she restarted the theater in its old tradition. But she hired new young writers to craft the short tales of farce and shock, which seemed to give it like an injection of life for a bit. While it seemed like a turnaround, this optimism was really short-lived. Productions were plagued by very real problems and dangerous situations, which were difficult to distinguish from the publicity stunts that Machard was trying to do to reignite interest. Yeah, there were a lot of stories coming out at this time, and people were not always sure what was real and what was just part of a stunt. So there was a kidnapping of one of the lead actresses, which was definitely fake. Uh, and even some of the more upsetting stories really remain a little bit murky. So uh, apparently a leather harness is said to have nearly claimed the life of an actress when she tried to get into it backstage and she nearly hung herself. 
Another actress had a nervous breakdown on stage, and yet another was burned by a flame effect. There were a lot of problems. So while Monchard had managed to elicit a swell in ticket sales, the tone of things was a lot less realistic and a lot more campy, and the theater became more of a tourist attraction than a cultural icon. Yeah, I think we've all seen this happen to places in in various cities. Like the sort of cool underground thing that develops and becomes iconic pretty soon becomes more like an amusement park and less like itself. Um, From 1959 to 1961, a man named Fred Pascal ran the theater. And some of the plays at this point veered back towards more realistic horror, but it was really too late to regain the glory days of Mari's and Choisy's times. Charles Nonon once again became the director of the Grand Guignol in 1961, and he would be its last director. In an interview with Time magazine, he said, Before the war, everyone felt what was happening on stage was impossible. Now we know these things and worse are possible in reality. So after 65 years of frights and chills, the Grand Guignol closed its doors for good in November of 1962. The chapel-turned-theater reopened briefly as a new theatrical enterprise, not as the Grand Guignol, but that also quickly failed. And in March 1963, the entrance and portico of the space were demolished. There were two spin-off theater companies launched in London that carried the name Grand Guignol, one in the 1920s and one in the 1940s, but neither of them ran for very long. The theater has been referenced in numerous films throughout the years, both documentary and fictional, including the first season of Penny Dreadful. Yeah, if you watch a show, and I do, because it's fantastic, uh, there's a, a whole whole episode that is titled Grand Guignol. And there is also a similar theater in the book and subsequent film Interview with a Vampire called Théâtre des Vampires. But apparently author Anne Rice has said that she did not know about the Grand Guignol when she wrote of the theater, uh, which if you missed either the book or that film, audiences believed they were watching fiction but were in fact observing real deaths at the hands of vampires. So it was sort of like the snuff film equivalent of theater. Today, theater companies around the world still stage modern productions of some of the surviving plays for the Grand Guignol. Yeah, there are actually textbooks on how to stage Grand Guignol plays, and there are. uh, Because, you you know, for a modern audience, if you stage them as written, they would probably seem very hokey in some cases, although they were doing some pretty amazing stuff with effects at the time. And in fact, the, the word Grand Guignol has kind of come to be associated with shocking uh, sort of extreme horror. So it's taken on a life of its own. Uh, like I said, it shows up sort of everywhere. You'll you'll be now that you have have heard of it. If you hadn't before, you will start to see it everywhere. And now you know what it it's referencing. Uh, so that is the Grand Guignol. That's one of those things that if uh, I could time travel, I would probably pick a, as a place to visit. Not me. I think it would be kind of spectacular. You do that. Not you. <laughs> not, I'm not into it. Uh, I will report back uh, if I remain conscious after both my time travel and seeing a terrifying play (laughs) or a terrifying play and a comedy and a terrifying play and a comedy and one more terrifying play. Uh, Yeah, I think it would be spectacular, uh, which is why I thought it would be perfect Halloween fair for the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us on this Saturday. Since this episode is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar over the course of the show, that could be obsolete now. 
Our current email address is historypodcast at iheartradio.com. Our old How Stuff Works email address no longer works. You can find us all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.